welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Hi, I'm Micah. Nice to meet you all. Second uh, Corinthians, if you have your Bibles, turn there. Um, World Vision has actually uh, entered into an official partnership with the Evangelical Covenant Church. It's the first of its kind. And um, I'm really, really proud to be a part of the covenant because, uh, for a lot of reasons, but this one um, notwithstanding, uh, I was at a breakfast a couple weeks ago with our president, and he said, uh, the covenant has had a long history in the Congo. The Congo is the poorest planet in, on the planet. And um, they have, uh, uh, and, and our denomination has had a history there, and so we have decided to formally make a partnership with World Vision to say we're going to take the gospel to the poor, not only the poorest place on the planet, but the poorest like section of the poorest country of the poorest continent on the planet. Um, as if to say, uh, Jesus, if Jesus doesn't work there, it won't work for anybody. And so uh, it's pretty, pretty powerful stuff what's happening there. So I'm really proud to be a part of that. <clears throat> and uh, if you are interested in running uh, the Twin Cities Marathon, obviously uh, what happens is you, you uh, get supporters and you raise money for clean water projects in the Congo, which is fantastic. So talk to Bradley, Kaya, uh, really, really. My wife did this last year, by the way. Laura ran it. First and last marathon she'll ever run. That's what she told me. She said, unbelievable experience. Some people run marathons and then they just keep doing more and they're like, yeah, run. And she's like, I did that. Done. <laughs> Check. <laughs> right? So, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. Stand, if you will, and we will read. Paul says this, If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent. Not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive him and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. In order that Satan might not outwit us, for, if, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Pray with me if you would. God, as we open ourselves to this text and we open this text to ourselves, we ask that you would find us <clears throat> wherever we are, on whatever part of the journey of forgiveness, and you would shine your, your light, uh, which is warm and graceful and loving, firm, and you would call us, invite us into the people you have uh, always dreamt us to be. We pray in the strong name of Jesus. All God's people said, amen. You can have a seat. Uh, so we're in this series, if you are just joining us in 2 Corinthians, and this particular passage is obviously a very specific event. Um, Paul is addressing something that has happened in the church of Corinth, someone who has done something, and how the church has responded. Uh, there's debate as to what's happening here or who this person is, what they've done. Paul mentions uh, a guy in 1 Corinthians. He was sleeping with his mother-in-law, which was not a good idea, obviously, for lots of reasons. And some believe that this is the person Paul has in mind. Others believe that the people Paul has in mind are those who sort of have stood up against him in his previous visit when he came. And uh, regardless of who it is, what Paul is saying and, and what happens in the church and how they do it is really what I want to sort of uh, camp on this morning. Um, remember, Paul has been to Corinth once and then twice. This last visit was a brutal mess. 
Then he writes a letter of tears, he calls it. And in that letter, um, we believe as putting the pieces together, he's encouraging the church to respond to whoever this person is or these people are and to essentially call them to account that they are not living up to this life that, God, that, that they've been invited to live in Christ um, and that what they're doing is not benefiting or, or uh, it's not serving the community. In fact, it's standing in the way of that or it's standing against that. And so Paul invites them to sort of, um, well, to discipline this person or these people. And as you read or as you heard, um, he's essentially saying these people have sort of come to the conclusion that what they've done wasn't the way they should have done it and have repented. And now he's saying, forgive them, welcome them back into community. Don't withhold them lest they go into despair, right? Um, and so this is kind of what's happening in this passage. Uh, C.S. Lewis says, we all agree that forgiveness is a beautiful idea until we have to practice it, <laughs> Right? Uh, Luke or, or Jesus in Luke 17 says, if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them, which is to say, call them out on that. Uh, if they repent, forgive them. And even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back saying, I repent, you must forgive them. One author commentator says, true forgiveness neither excuses sin nor ignores that it happened. It means that you still relate to the person in spite of what has happened, but also in light of what has happened. So this is a, a teaching that sort of centers on the idea of forgiveness. So it'll be really happy and really lighthearted. Um, many of you know this guy, Rabbi Allen. I've talked about him before. Laura and I have had this chance to study with him. And one of the things I've learned from Allen is to ask the question, what's the river? So when you come to a passage, when you come to a text, you, you, you say, what's the river of thought, flow, what are the themes that are here, and what is, what's, what's the river that the text is inviting me into, right? What are the themes that are present that it's asking me to consider? And I would say there's a couple. I want to just pull out three this morning for our time. Uh, so what's at stake here? What's really at play? What's Paul talking about? I would say first, you could say it this way, our responsibility to one another and our responsibility to Christ and the church. Um, so somebody's out of line in Corinth. Paul exhorts them in his letter of tears to discipline this person, and it, but it's not out of judgment or pride or to sort of lay, you know, lay the lumber down, but rather it's out of love for the community, that there are times when leaders in a community need to sort of take the community's best interest and lead to that end, and sometimes that includes calling somebody out or disciplining somebody or asking them to change their course of behavior or action, um, because our choices matter, right? We can't just do anything that we want. We don't exist as isolated individuals, but we exist and we were created for community, relationships. And so we're woven together. We've been singing that song, Tapestry, lately. We've been woven together, and, and this is especially true of the church. So we don't exist unto ourselves, and as they say, you reap what you sow. If you sow these seeds, then sometimes the consequences of those decisions, well, they find you. For the church at Corinth, they were responsible to one another in community, so there needed to be this dealing with this person. So it wasn't just a, a, a matter of community, though, you know, that the leaders would say, Paul would say, I encourage you to, 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 to shine the light on this person's actions and call them into you know, uh, this following of Jesus. It's not just about that, but it's about Christ himself. Uh, we have, for those who have said yes to Jesus, the scriptures say that we have been bought with a price. Our lives are not our own which is to say that we have surrendered ourselves or submitted ourselves to something other than our own thoughts, wills, and desires. 
We've submitted ourselves to another way of being human, and it's the way of Jesus. It's the example of Jesus that he sets. It's, it's self-sacrificial, other-oriented, Calvary kind of love that should then mark our lives because we've placed ourselves under the rule and reign, the kingdom, so to speak, of this Jesus. So we can't just do whatever we want. And so Paul says, listen, this person has said yes to Christ and they're acting in such a way that it's not consistent with the life of Jesus. And so in love and in grace, we want to call them into this way of being human together. Now, if you're anything like me, I get a little nervous around, you know, when we start talking, I said last week, I have, a, I have a, uh, maybe a slight issue with authority. I'm guessing I'm not the only person in the room. Sometimes authority and discipline has felt in the past like somebody was kind of like coming over me and like squishing me down, Right? or sort of had their thumbs on me, and I was told what to do because I didn't have the power that they did, and so they said, you do what I say. And unfortunately, this has happened in the church as well, where spiritual authority and discipline has felt like somebody was coming alongside of you or coming over the top of you and sort of saying, you do as you obey, you, 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 you do what, what we say. And gang, that is just not, there couldn't be anything farther from the truth of what Paul is saying in this passage. The silver bullet here when we're talking about community and, and discipline, if we're talking about it, or, or calling somebody into the life of this Jesus that we follow who might be acting in such a way that they're outside of that to say, come on, come along, what that, the tracks that that runs on, the silver bullet that has to be present is relationship. When it's not present, that feels like it has felt for many of us. So it has to run on the tracks of relationship. Difficult conversations have to have bridges that will bear the weight of truth. When those bridges that will bear the weight of the truth of those kinds of conversations are not present, it feels out of sorts. Um, I, I had a friend of mine in college named Matt, and Matt and I would meet every single week. Uh, he was a youth pastor. We were, we were both young youth pastors together, newly married. So we decided to get together. We met at sunrise, sunset, every Wednesday morning uh, for breakfast at 7 a.m., and we had this list of questions that we would ask one another. Now, I'm a fly fisherman. Uh, at least I was in college. I skipped a lot of class. Kids, don't do that. It's not a good idea. I, uh, so I fly fished a lot. I was going up into the mountains for, for a, a long extended trip of skipping class. And uh, I decided to stock up on some flies. So I went to Super Kmart in Colorado. They used to have these things, Super K. And uh, Super Kmart in Colorado, they actually have a great department, a uh, fly fishing department. So they, they have just, you know, stacks of flies and you pull them out and they're just, oh, they're, they're it's like kid in a candy store, you know, loved it. So you're there, you know, I'm there and, and they give you these little Dixie cups and they have a lid on them and on the lid there's a barcode, okay? So I'm picking flies out, you know, and these, they're, they're microscopic. You could fit like eight of them on your thumbnail. They're tiny. So you're putting these little tiny flies in there. And, uh, and you put the cap on, and then you go up to the register, and the 16-year-old gal who has never fished in her entire life checks you out, and she scans the deal, and she says, well, that'll be 69 cents. Little known secret that there's 69 cents apiece, and I had like 30 flies in this cup, right? So I'm an RA on campus. That's a resident advisor. I'm a leader on our Christian college campus. I'm the worship guy, you know, on, on uh, you know, chapel on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I'm this guy. And so, of course, this guy would say, oh, sweetheart, uh, there's actually 30 flies in there. It's times 69 cents, so go ahead and recalculate that. And that's not what I did. I took out a dollar, and I paid her, and I took the 31 cents change, and I left. 
it's terrible. To make matters worse, I thought to myself, this is a deal like no other. So I went back like three days later and did it again. I know, I know, it's terrible. I mean, it's terrible. Friends, people that follow Jesus do not do that. You don't extort Kmart even if they deserve it. It's not cool, not cool. Now, if somebody who didn't know me was like, you follow Jesus, you can't do that, you're a liar, you're a cheater, you got it. I probably would have said what I said last week with the trumpet move, you know, like if you were here for that. I would not have responded well to that. But Matt, at Wednesday at breakfast, one of our questions was, have any of your financial dealings lacked integrity this week? Busted. (laughs) Sinking feeling. You know exactly where I am right now. And I said, uh, yes which was the first time either one of us had said yes to that question. So it was like, well, what happened? Uh, so I tell him the story, and he's like, what the? You cannot do that. You go back there, find the girl, and pay her what you... So I ended up buying like $70 in flies or some... It wasn't that much, but it was an exorbitant amount for a college student to buy flies to go fishing. Point being, that conversation happened on the tracks of a deep, deep friendship. And I received that from Matt because I knew that Matt loved me. And I received that from him because I knew that Matt wanted the best for me and that Matt also knew the commitments that I had made to follow this Jesus. When we're talking about this kind of conversation in community, being right doesn't help. So if you say, you gotta stand up for the truth, you gotta, you know, you gotta let that person know. If you go to that person and they don't receive what you've said, what good does it do anybody? You're just a jerk, and you're right. Thank you. Good job. You're right. Way to go. Awesome. And they're wrong. Good. That works. No, the point here is not being right or wrong. The point is like resolution. The point is reconciliation. The point is somebody coming, having a repentant heart, recognizing they shouldn't have done that or said that, and saying, you know what? You're right. I'm sorry. That's the point. And that kind of conversation requires trust and accountability and relationship. So when we're talking about these kinds of things, I never want to take it out of that because that's where it begins. And I think that's one of the things that Paul's uh, encouraging these people into. Secondly, Paul, I would say, uh, what's at stake? What's in the river here? Don't forget about the accuser. Uh, We had this guy named Jerry Pipes. What a name, man. He was like this old guy at the church I grew up in. He drove drove this like totally cherry uh, uh, convertible. So he had this like 75-year-old guy just rocking it, you know, in this convertible named Jerry Pipes. You know, like, that guy's awesome. So we'd see, like, hey, what's up, Pipes? And I was, you know, junior high, high school kid. And he just loved students. He, like, kind of, you know, paternal grandfather figure at Grace Church Roseville. And so he'd come up, he'd be like, hey, how's it going, Micah? Hey, Pipes, what's up? And he'd say, hey, what are you reading these days? And so this one time, I remember it vividly. I'm in the lobby at Grace, and he says, hey, what are you reading these days? And I said, oh, I've been reading This Present Darkness and Piercing the Darkness. Does anybody remember these books? Yeah, it was a total phase. It was a phase. Uh, these, these books are sort of like a fictional exploration of kind of like spiritual warfare and this kind of thing, which is an important topic, uh, regardless of whether you agree with Frank Peretti on his theology. Pipe says to me, Micah, don't you go looking for a devil underneath every rock because you're going to find one. And I'm like, all right, cool. So should I read it or not? He's like, no, don't read that. His point was, you find what you're looking for. You see what you want to see. Have you ever bought a car and then you notice like everybody's got one? 
yeah, we bought a Honda Pilot. And I'm like, dude, Honda Pilots. Everybody has Honda Pilots. They're everywhere. You see what you want to see. Pipes' point was, this is important, spiritual warfare, and like this whole, you know, Paul says, in order that Satan might not outwit us, okay? But sometimes we may, maybe, maybe you've met like hyper-spiritual people, you know, and like the answer to, they, somebody's having a bad day and they're like, oh, the devil's out to get you today. You know, the demons must be busy. You know, that kind of thing. And you're kind of like, what the? You know, I'm being attacked. To which your response is, I think you just like ran over a nail and you got a flat tire. That's, that's it. That's it. No demons, no devil, no nothing. Just a nail. But if you're anything like me, experiences like that, I kind of just sort of like back away slowly from folks like this, you know, like hyper spiritual, everything's about the devil, that kind of thing. But Paul says, don't let Satan outwit us on this. Why? Because he's tapping into a reality here that's very important to recognize and understand. He's tapping into a larger stream of consciousness and deep truth in the scriptures that there is more happening than we see. That there is a force or forces, there is light and there is darkness. There is good and there is evil. Now, Here's where you should buckle up just for a second, okay? All of my life, there was no other possibility other than Satan was an ontological being, a, a person, personal reality, a being, and that being was named Lucifer. It was one of the angels God created. Lucifer rebelled, took one-third of the angels, God cast them out of heaven, and now they sort of work, they're, they're uh, uh, you know, wreaking havoc in creation, working against the forces of good, Allah, the kingdom, Jesus. The answer is Jesus on this one, friends. Now, this Satan was this this figure this the Satan figure was synonymous with the serpent who shows up in Genesis, in the garden. It's the one who brings about Job's suffering. It's the one the one that brings about Jesus's temptation. It's also the one who's in collusion with the Antichrist, who will be thrown into the lake of fire. When I taught junior hires, uh, I had I had a, a whole timeline of Revelation. Nuts, just nuts. I mean, can't believe I did this, but. I had abbreviations for all of these things because there's some crazy stuff in there, right? Like the ATCD, the abomination that causes desolation. LOF, Lake of Fire. That was, the, that was the abbreviation for Lake of Fire. So this is the person, right? Synonymous with all this. Now, these, this idea, this theological understanding of Satan is, is connected to, is re- rooted in two passages, really. And they are Ezekiel 28, which is a prophecy about a guy called the King of Tyre, that people then sort of say is symbolic, and that represents this Satan. And Isaiah 14, which says, How have you fallen from heaven, morning star, son of dawn? Translated Lucifer in the, in the original. That's where we get that. Uh, you have been cast down to the earth. You have once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will send to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. Now, friends, this may in fact be a very good way to understand this reality that we're talking about that Paul references here. Satan, personal you know, ontological reality called Satan. But there are some difficulties with this. And if you've ever found yourself like wonder, if I'm, you know, cards out, I'm actually in process on this one. I grew up thinking this is the only way to understand this. And I'm not sure that that's totally always the best way to understand that. Here's, a, here's one reason why. In biblical Hebrew, the word that's translated Satan or the devil is actually, it's two words, it's ha-satan. Ha means the, and satan literally means adversary or accuser. So in the original language, when you read it, it's like dot, 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 not Satan pronoun, but the accuser, ha-satan. 
13 times it's used that way in Job and Zechariah with the, the definite article, as a part of the, the, the sentence. And 10 other times in the Old Testament, it appears without the the, and it's just Satan. But the tricky part is, it often refers to people. So, 1 Samuel 29, the Philistines say, lest David be an uh, Satan against us. So David, the king of Israel, is Satan, the adversary. 1 Kings eleven fourteen, the Lord stirred up an adversary unto Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. So Hadad the Edomite is the Satan. Again, in 1 Kings 11, God stirred him up an adversary, Rezan, the son of Eliada. Again, this guy is the Satan. I say all this to say, I'm not trying to confuse you. I'm not trying to rattle your faith. I'm not trying to like stir up something just for the sake of stirring it up. But I think it's really important that we understand that something that we have believed our whole lives or something that we come as an assumption might not always be the assumption of the people in the room that we're with. Sometimes it's people in our community at church. Sometimes it's people outside of our community. And for most Jews, most Hebrew people, and most of the Old Testament, Satan as a personal pronoun is a completely foreign idea. I think it's important for us as people who are, I, I, want, I want our faith to be intellectual. I want, I want you to think about the things that you believe. I don't want you to just willy-nilly say, oh yeah, I believe that because, well, that's what they taught me on the flannel graph. Gotta do better than that. Gotta do better than that. So I bring this up to say, However you understand this reality, whether it's a, a, a sort of force at work within humanity called evil, Satan, the adversary accuser, or it's some sort of personal pronoun like an angel that fell from heaven, that's important. What's more important than that is what Paul says. There is a narrative out there that says vengeance, retribution, uh, holding grudges, unforgiveness, and bitterness is a better way to live. Paul says, no, that is not true. It is a false, it's a lie. Unforgiveness, bitterness, rage, uh, resentment, retribution, that always leads to death. Always. It only consumes you or the other person. That, friends, stands in opposition to the story that we find at the beginning of the Bible of a garden called Delight where there is only life and flourishing and wholeness. So this way of being, this narrative, that retribution, in fact, you, you deserve to be angry. You, you have every right to pay back whatever it was that happened. That narrative, the evil that it proposes and that, sort of dr- that it's driven by is not of the kingdom. And Paul says, do not let sa- Satan, the adversary, the accuser, do not let that scheme and that narrative outwit you. It does not lead to life. It never will and it cannot. And it will not last in resurrection. Only light will last. Only goodness, only beauty, only truth, only love. So don't buy it. You may feel like you have every right to be angry, hurt, whatever it is you feel. Don't buy it. It's a lie. In the river, our responsibility to each other, to the church, don't buy this lie. And lastly, I would say this. Uh, forgiveness is a better way. Forgiveness is the better way. Forgiveness is the only way to healing when we've been hurt. Forgiveness paves the way to life and healing in our lives when we're hurt. When we have, one, one author says that forgiveness is the, uh, it's the art of healing inner wounds inflicted by other people's wrongs. Last week I said bitterness is a prison locked from the inside. And it is. 
When we've been hurt, when something has happened, whether it's a relationship that went south, whether it was a parent that said something or did something, whether it was a coworker who sat, when we've been hurt, bitterness and anger and resentment, it's a prison locked from the inside. And only you have the key to that. Only I have the key to that. It's our only move when we've been hurt that we have control over. We can't control other people's actions. We can't control what they say or do. We can hope, we can pray that they might you know, live into what they've said they would follow if they're followers of Jesus, but we can't, you can control the key that you have in your hand as to whether or not you will forgive or, or be bitter. And it's like an IV drip. You ever seen an IV drip in the hospital? That's bitterness. And it poisons your soul. It will kill you from the inside out. That's the lie. Don't buy it. Don't believe it. Forgiveness has to be at the center of what it means to follow Jesus because this is what Christ does on the cross, gang. When Jesus hangs there, he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. It is the centerpiece of the cross. And as we see Jesus' self-sacrificial love and sacrifice on the cross, we see the heart of God, which is forgiveness. And so, friends, it only follows that people who follow this Jesus, it should mark us. Now, I know this is hard work. I know that this is not just a sermon. I know that this involves people and feelings and pain and tears. God, tears, lots of them. I mentioned this last week, and I want to just say a couple of things as I wrap up. One, forgiveness is not a free pass. Forgiveness is not a free pass for whoever it is on the other side to just run rogue to do whatever it is that they want. Forgiveness is not forgetting what happened. I would argue forgiveness is about remembering in some cases. It's not a free pass. It's not a sort of wipe the slate clean as if it never happened. That's not forgiveness. That's naivete. Forgiveness is much harder work than that. It is not a license for the other person to keep doing what they did. Forgiveness is not about them. It's about you. Forgiveness is your move. Not theirs. Justice, consequences for choices that are made, that's something totally separate from forgiveness. One guy, uh, Lewis Smedes, wrote a book called uh, The Art of Forgiving. And I want to just offer three thoughts that he sort of, he says, when you forgive, what are you doing and what are you being invited into? When we forgive, guys, when, when, we, when we say yes to this road of moving towards forgiveness, number one, we restore the other person's humanity. Oftentimes when somebody hurts us, we reduce them to the sum of their actions. How would you like it if we did that to you? I'm in deep trouble if you reduce me to the sum of my actions. I'm in big trouble. When we are hurt, our move often is to reduce that person to the sum of their crime or the sum of their actions, and then they become a person. They'll, they're, they're, only, they're, they're always going to be a cheat. Or, or in the worst case scenario, they're hardly human. right? They're, they're animals, people who do that. Gang, danger. When we stand in that spot, we deny the image of God that has been given to every human being, and we deny the dignity that's been given by God to every human being. Not our spot. Not our place to be. Forgiveness. Step one, restore the other person's humanity. They are a child of God. 
created by God, loved by God, as much as you are a child of God, loved by God. As we do that, we surrender our right to get even. Number two, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Justice, consequences, not up to you, not up to me. We surrender our right to get even. Vengeance, retribution, it's a zero-sum game. I can never pay you back the pain that you inflicted on me because the pain that you inflicted on me is never as bad as what I can do to you. And so it's always this. It always escalates. It never resolves. The Hatfields and the McCoys for crying out loud. I mean, right? It's, it's always one up. So we, we, we surrender our desire, our right, whatever right we feel we have to get even and we trust that God is God. And that God is in, God ultimately has all of this in his purview. And we surrender our hope, our desire, our right to get even. That's hard work. Really hard work. And as we do those things, we begin to revise our feelings towards that person. Because to the degree that we can imagine them as a child of God is the degree to which we can believe that that's true about them. Forgiveness doesn't always mean reconciliation. It doesn't always mean they're going to be your best friend. It does mean that you wish them well. That at some point you get to the place where you can release them to God and say, God, I really hope that you could change their heart. And I've had to do that in a couple of really hard relationships in my life. And I'll tell you this, it's not easy and it always comes back. I hate that part of forgiveness. It drives me absolutely batty. First time I had to forgive somebody that really hurt me, I'm like, okay, I've done this. I've walked it out. Great. Have my first kid, and it's like right in my face. As each season of life comes, and that person who would have been in that relationship or whatnot isn't there, then it's like, now I have to forgive you all over again. I have to walk another journey on behalf of my children. But gang, this is the only way. This forgiveness paves the road to life. It paves the road to the garden. This is what God is about. So Paul says, don't let, the, don't let, don't be outwitted on this one. Don't buy it. So I ask you this morning as we close, where does forgiveness find you? Maybe you're here this morning and you have had a relationship that just went south. Maybe it was a spouse, maybe it was a parent. And maybe the thought of them just makes you angry, bitter, resentful. Maybe it just does something inside of you. And I want to invite you to consider what it would look like to begin forgiving them. It, w- it may take a while. But this is the, fir- this is the step that Jesus, that Jesus' people take. It has to be. Maybe you've been on the other end of that and you've hurt somebody. What would it look like for you to come and say, I was wrong. I am sorry. Please forgive me. Find us online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awakening Community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.